the first 22 verses of John 19, which I just read for you, the themes that we've already addressed continue to be present in the narrative. Pilate's suppression of the truth, for example. Pilate is here continuing to try to release Jesus because he knows full well that Jesus is innocent, and yet he, in the end, is just like, well, whatever, let me ignore the truth, let me suppress the truth and act expediently. The Sanhedrin's suppression of the truth. We see them, again, utterly hypocritical, first of all, claiming to be loyal subjects of Caesar. We have no king but Caesar, when the reality is that these guys hated and resented being under Caesar, but here it's expedient, so this is the statement that they made. And then, obviously, the suppression of the truth that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, as they accused him of in verse 7, but actually was. And they had sufficient evidence to know that he was, but again, the suppression of the truth. We covered that at greater length a couple of weeks ago, but I just want you to see it still continues to be present and latent in the text as we come into John chapter 19. The theme also of Jesus as the king of a kingdom that is not of this world. We covered that at length last Sunday morning, and that theme continues to be present and latent here in the text as we come into John 19. This morning we return to the theme of Jesus' kingship, albeit from a slightly different angle. We look at Jesus as the king of the Jews this morning, as Pilate labeled him when he hung him on the cross. What did Pilate mean when he wrote the king of the Jews and affixed it to the cross? Why did the Sanhedrin object to it? Why did they come to Pilate and say, Do not write the king of the Jews, but write, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. And is it an appropriate title for Jesus? These are the sorts of questions that we will answer this morning, beginning with the first two. What did Pilate mean when he wrote the king of the Jews, and why did the Sanhedrin object to it? And on this point, let me, let me first explain a plausible view that I, think, I tend to think is probably the meaning that Pilate intended. And then, let me give you what the experts say, what the commentators say, which, uh, which are not the same in this particular case. Most weeks, I tend to follow the, uh, the experts, and as I study the text, I tend to see, yeah, what they're saying makes good sense in the text. This morning, I beg to differ. It seems to me that Pilate is presented by the Gospel authors as being really quite conflicted internally in the trial of Jesus. Pilate clearly knows that Jesus has done nothing deserving of death. He says repeatedly here in John's account of the trial, I find no guilt in him. In Luke's Gospel, Pilate is even more explicit. He says... Quote, after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Luke 23, verses 14 and 15. Furthermore, Pilate was warned by his wife 
as recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 19. And in John's Gospel, we read that when Pilate heard the statement that Jesus had made himself the Son of God, in verse 7, in verse 8, we read, he was even more afraid. Which implies that he was a little afraid already, prior to that point. Then when Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above, we read that Pilate, from then on, sought to release him. So that statement had some impact on Pilate. So he was afraid when he heard that Jesus had made himself the Son of God. And then when Jesus started talking about authority from above, Pilate was like, mm. he wanted to release him. Right? So Pilate is, I believe, to some extent, actually won over to Jesus' side and eventually becomes something of an advocate for Jesus. Not saying he was a Christian by any means. It's, it's evident from the rest of scriptures that he was not, that he was guilty, that he was wicked, that he was unregenerate, etc. But I think that he was actually, to some extent, won over to Jesus' side and eventually becomes something of an advocate for Jesus based on fear of supernatural reprisal. See, Pilate was not a secular naturalist. Pilate didn't live in a non-supernatural world. Pilate believed in the gods and stuff like that. Right? So I think that Pilate picks up on something supernatural happening here. His wife has a dream warning him not to have anything to do with this man. He hears that Jesus has made himself the son of God, which makes him even more afraid. And then when Jesus says, when Pilate postures and says, don't you know that I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus says, you would have no authority at all unless it was given you from above. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. I think Pilate realizes, he perceives the supernatural to some extent in this person in front of him. And I think that Pilate for that reason sort of wants to take Jesus' side on this issue and release him. And yet, Pilate is, in a sense, right to be concerned about the mob outside. If he sets Jesus free, it is likely that he will be in trouble with Rome because a riot will break out under his watch. And so, I think that inwardly, Pilate sort of senses that Jesus is not the typical criminal that he sees so regularly before him. I think that Pilate suspects, rightly, that there may be something supernatural about Jesus. And I think that Pilate is somewhat superstitious and afraid of what the gods might do if he kills one of their sons. Putting it in the way that Pilate was likely to think about it. And so I think, not the commentators, but I think, that Pilate may actually be acknowledging some legitimacy of Jesus' claim 
to be the king of the Jews in the theological sense, which is the root of the charge, um, or which is at the root of the charge that the Sanhedrin has now finally acknowledged. You remember, they first brought Jesus to Pilate with the charge of political sedition, but when that is not yet being successful, finally in chapter 19 and verse 7, they say, look, we have a law, and according to this law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God, John 19 and verse 7. So now, Pilate knows that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God and to be some sort of spiritual ruler of these people. He realizes that theology and blasphemy is at the root of this thing. So something is going on where he knows full well Jesus is not a political, geopolitical threat to Rome. Jesus is not going to march an army against Tiberius Caesar. Pilate has determined that already. But he knows this is some kind of spiritual ruler of the Jews that claims to be a son of God. I think that this probably spooked Pilate enough to actually acknowledge something of the legitimacy of Jesus' claim in order, perhaps, to pacify the wrath of Jesus himself in case Jesus does something supernatural, something Herculean to rescue himself or to vanquish his enemies. Or to pacify the gods, even as he hands Jesus over to be crucified. After all, his whole demeanor in this passage, and he goes to great pains, even symbolically washing his hands, to make the point, I have nothing to do with this. This has nothing to do with me. You crucify him, but I am not guilty here. Right? So in case the gods are watching, or in case Jesus does something supernatural and godlike, Pilate acknowledges that Jesus is some sort of king in order to clear his own name in the eyes of the gods or in the eyes of Jesus, this son of the gods that is in front of him. And yet, because of the mob, Pilate hands over Jesus to them anyway. So you see this really conflicted character. We've read Greek mythology and we kind of know that what happens is kind of unpredictable and there's this drama unfolding and Pilate is kind of, he knows that the humans have some power but he knows that the gods have some power and I see Pilate kind of trying to take a middle path here. Saying, okay, yes, yes, I acknowledge you're a king. I acknowledge you're a king. But the mob out there doesn't acknowledge that you're a king. And I mean, what can I do? You know, I'd love to release you, because I, I know that you're a king. But the mob out there, see, that's kind of what I think is going on in this passage. Pilate can now tell himself and tell Jesus, as it were, that he is something of a good person. Well, it's the people out there that are the bad people. But isn't that very inconsistent? After all, if he was a good person, wouldn't he stand in the way of Jesus' death, and wouldn't he oppose it? Well, yes, strictly speaking. And yet, don't we see that happening all the time in the world around us? Isn't it common to human nature to do something like that? 
to try to take a really inconsistent middle position to be like, well, it's not so much me. I mean, if it was up to me, I would help you, but you know, I'm just a victim of circumstance, or I'm just following orders, or I'm just, right? Isn't this the way that human nature often works? I think something like this is going on here with Pilate. Now, what the commentators say, on the other hand, is quite different. They basically, they paint Pilate as basically ambivalent toward Jesus all the way through. Now, you remember that, that Pilate was absolutely ambivalent toward Jesus in the beginning. So that's, that's obvious from the text, and I grant that. When Jesus first appears before Pilate, he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Which, as I said last week was basically like, look, I don't care about you, I don't care about the Jews, I just have a responsibility to Rome to do this. So, so in the beginning, Pilate was just basically ambivalent toward Jesus. He was literally just discharging a legal matter, which he really had no vested concern in. He really had no personal interest in whether Jesus is condemned or goes free. He doesn't care. He's just there to enact the laws of Rome. I think, as I just outlined, that, that he actually became inwardly motivated to set Jesus free because of his own fear and his own superstition and wanted to appease Jesus and the gods to some extent. So I think that Pilate changed throughout the trial. The commentators think that Pilate basically maintained this neutral posture all the way through. I don't care about you. I'm not a Jew. I don't care about Jewish affairs. And that was Pilate's disposition all the way through the trial. Pilate's emotional energy is not actually wrapped up in who Jesus is or not. Pilate doesn't care. Pilate's not interested. Rather, Pilate's emotional energy is directed not so much toward ascertaining the identity of Jesus, but toward the political wrangling between himself and the Sanhedrin. So there is the Roman governor, Pilate, and then there is the Sanhedrin, which is a Jewish body, but they're sort of granted some authority by Rome. So it's kind of this uneasy, like, who's really in charge of the territory? Is it the Roman governor or is it the Sanhedrin? And so they're kind of set up in this sort of competing way. The Sanhedrin's always trying to take advantage of their position and maybe take a little bit more than they're entitled to. Pilate is always kind of trying to make sure that when they're given an inch, they don't take a mile. And yet Pilate has to give them an inch because he's been ordered by Rome to do so. So there's this uneasy relationship between the Sanhedrin and Pilate. According to the near universal consensus of the commentators, the sense of the inscription, the king of the Jews, is simply to spite the Sanhedrin, who brought this charge in the first place, that Jesus had set himself up as the king of the Jews. So Pilate first answered them, basically, like, you can't be serious. This is the king of the Jews. He talks to Jesus, and he's like, no, this guy's no, this guy's no political threat. This guy's not the king of the Jews. What do you want about it? This is, this is a ridiculous charge. But they double down, and it's as if they answer him, oh, we're, we're dead serious. This guy really is a political threat. 
And so Pilate is like, okay, well then let's treat him like a real political threat. What would we do to the king of the Jews? Here is the king of the Jews. And he writes the charge, the king of the Jews, above Jesus' head, as if Rome has really gone out and subdued a rebellion and conquered the Jewish people over again and has taken their beloved king captive and has crucified him. This, of course, rubs it in, as one commentator puts it, humiliating and grating the nerves of the Sanhedrin, who, contrary to what they say in John 19, 15, we have no king but Caesar, contrary to what they say there in that verse, they actually are not happy subjects of Caesar, but they resent it. And so, by writing the king of the Jews, Pilate is really rubbing in. We are in charge of you. If you had a king, this is what we would do to him. That kind of thing. This bothers the Sanhedrin because they constantly wish for and dream of independence. And so Pilate writes the king of the Jews to spite them, basically. Why do I present you with both views? Just to help you see possibilities in this passage, which may be there. I am not 100% sure why exactly Pilate wrote the king of the Jews on the inscription which was posted above Jesus' head. And the commentators, frankly, aren't either. And this is because we're just not told. We're, we're given the text and we're here trying to understand the sense of it. But this is a point that we're just not explicitly told why. Pilate did what he did. We're told that he did what he did, but we're not told why he did what he did. So it's psychologizing and reading into Pilate's motives to try to find an answer. But the fact is that he did write it. And it is clear whether my hypothesis is correct or whether the commentator's hypothesis is correct as to why Pilate wrote it. Or whether it's, it's, it's both to some extent or neither to some extent. It's clear that the Sanhedrin did not acknowledge Jesus as king in any sense. They knew full well he wasn't a political threat, nor did they acknowledge him as their Messiah. So from the Sanhedrin's perspective, Jesus was not the king of the Jews politically, nor was he the king of the Jews theologically. And so it's obvious why they objected to the charge being posted as the king of the Jews, rather than, as they wanted, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. They did not think that it was a proper title for Jesus in any sense. He wasn't their political king, he wasn't their theological king, so they wanted to set the record straight, he's not our king, he simply claimed to be our king. And this raises the question for us to consider this morning, is the king of the Jews, an appropriate title for Jesus. Should we resent Pilate's action, writing the king of the Jews above Jesus' head for all to read? In fact, those are three languages to read as Jesus hung on the cross. Should we question whether it is fitting to call Jesus the king of the Jews, since we're Gentiles and not Jews, and Jesus is our king too, so maybe, maybe the king of the Jews is, is not a good title 
for Jesus? Or should we consider it a surprisingly fitting label? Surprising, coming from a Roman governor under the circumstances, but fitting, nevertheless. Well, as we saw last week, Jesus' kingdom is of a different sort than the other kingdoms of the earth. It's not the same kind of kingdom. There is no currency you can spend in Jesus' kingdom. There is no navy or air force in, in or of Jesus' kingdom. And you cannot get a passport valid for travel between North America and Barbados issued by Jesus' kingdom. You show up to Grantley Adams with a passport of that nature. You say, well, we've never seen one of these before and it's not valid. See? So Jesus' kingdom is not even the same type of thing as the other kingdoms of the earth. In the sense, then, of being a geopolitical ruler of the then extant nation of Israel, currently under Rome's authority, supposedly possessing Jesus, supposedly possessing the attentions of that kind of king, and supposedly prepared to utilize the common methods of that kind of king to achieve political independence for the then extant nation of Israel, and then henceforth to improve his nation's economy and expand its importance on the global scene, etc. In that sense, Jesus was not the king of the Jews. He wasn't that kind of king, and he didn't pose that kind of threat to Rome as the trial of Jesus before Pilate clearly established, in which we dealt with at great length last week. However, there is a sense in which Jesus was and is the King of the Jews. The Gospel is framed predominantly and primarily in the Old Testament Scriptures as God's rescue and deliverance of Israel. Sure, the nations are envisioned as sharing in the blessings of Israel under God's rule and reign in their rescued state. But again, I say that the gospel is framed in the Old Testament predominantly and primarily in the category of God's rescue and deliverance of Israel. Don't believe me? Go read the prophets. Which ones? All of them. You will notice that the dominant theme, the foremost theme in the prophets, is God's judgment, both on the nations and on Israel itself, but following on the heels of that judgment, the rescue and the restoration of Israel to a blessed state of being. For the sake of time, I'll just share a few passages with you. We're, of course, not going to do an exhaustive study of the prophets this morning. First, consider Jeremiah 31, which contains the well-known passage about a new covenant, which is quoted also in Hebrews chapter 8. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 31 who the new covenant is made with. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it goes on from there into the familiar passage, as I said, quoted in Hebrews 8 also. So the storyline of Scripture is not that God abandons Israel and does something else other than help and bless and rescue Israel. But rather, the storyline of Scripture is that God makes a new covenant with Israel and brings the blessedness that He intended for them to pass through the new covenant instead of the old, which did not bring blessedness but cursedness because the people of Israel were unable to meet its conditions. This is how it's unpacked in Hebrews chapter 8. Secondly, Isaiah 65 and verse 17 tells us that after the destruction prophesied throughout the book, toward the end of the book, this is the last two chapters, Isaiah 65 and verse 17, God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Well, this is a pretty clear prophecy of the end of all things, isn't it? And what comes next? Isaiah 65 and verse 18, of course. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, namely, the new heavens and the new earth. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. Then over one chapter to Isaiah 66 and verse 22, God speaks again to the people of Jerusalem. And he says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So the people of Jerusalem remain as long as the new heavens and the new earth. Does it follow necessarily that, that each and every biological Jew will enjoy and participate in this rescue and this restoration? No. Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 11 to 13, speaking about the day of Israel's restoration. God says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. Remember, it's judgment and then after the judgment, right? On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you, or y'all, shall no longer be haughty in all my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. Does it follow necessarily 
that if Israel is blessed, then the rest of the nations are cursed. Again, no. Just prior to the verses I read to you, just, just now, Zephaniah 3, 11 to 13, is Zephaniah 3, verse 9, where again, speaking of the day of Israel's restoration, God says, at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. So are all Israelites included? No. The proudly exalted ones are gathered out. Are all Gentiles excluded? No. They also may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Moreover, and we skip this when looking at Isaiah 65 and 66 a moment ago, just for the sake of not breaking our train of thought at that time. But if we go back there to the passage we were just looking at, in Isaiah 66, verses 18 through 21, just before the verse I cited in Isaiah 66, 22, God says, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations. To Tarshish, Pol, and Lud. Who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan. To the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. So this is an ingathering of the nations to God. And some of them, God says, Listen to this. So who are we talking about when, I, when we say them? The nations. And some of them, God says in Isaiah 66 and verse 21, I will take for priests and for Levites. So not only will the nations be included, but they will become Jews. For the Levites are Jews. God promises a shocking thing. The nations will become Levites. We're in a study of the Old Covenant in our Sunday evening series. And we've been looking at the tabernacle and we've been looking at the priesthood. You would know from, from our study in the Old Covenant that even those in Israel from other tribes couldn't become Levites. You were either a descendant of Levi or you weren't. You couldn't become a priest by any other means than being not only a Levite, but being a son of Aaron. You couldn't buy it, you couldn't be appointed to it, you couldn't prove your worth, you couldn't submit a job application, you couldn't know somebody on the inside. You either were a Levite, a son of Aaron, or you weren't. 
So you couldn't become a Levite, even if you were a Levite who wasn't Aaron's son, you couldn't become a priest. But God will make the Gentiles Levites. And not just Levites, but priests. Sons of Aaron, as it were. So the distinction then between Levites and the other tribes will be erased in the end. And there will be nothing unique about the tribe of Levi. And the distinction, even between Jews and Gentiles, will also be functionally erased. Because even the Gentiles will be sons of Aaron, as it were. Levites, priests. God uses symbolic language, of course, here in Isaiah 66, because the nations aren't all of a sudden going to have new DNA and be genetic descendants of Levi. That's not really the point of it. The point of it is that they will be drawn as near as priests, given the privileges of priests, be set apart as holy as the priests. So you won't have degrees and gradations of holiness and set-apartness and access and privilege where one set of God's people will be set apart as distinct and privileged above the rest of God's people, but all will be given the access of priests. All will be equally holy, equally set apart. <clears throat> Therefore, the end result will be in Christ Jesus. There is no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. See, we read this somewhere before. If I can pull all this together and sum this up, the gospel which simply means good news, doesn't it? The good news is framed in the Old Testament predominantly and primarily as God's rescue and deliverance of Israel in which the Gentiles may share by becoming Jews and worshiping Israel's God and bowing down in deference to Israel's king. Both Jews and Gentiles who are willing to live in subservience to the king of Israel, who will at that time, at the time of Israel's restoration, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, according to Psalm 72 and verse 8. Those who are willing to kiss the sun lest he be angry and he perish in the way. To offer up that kiss of deference to Israel's Messiah, Israel's King, Israel's rescuing King, Israel's Savior King. To those of both Jews and Gentiles who are willing to live under Israel's King, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Isaiah 66 and verse 23. 
And this is keeping with New Testament revelation also, where we are told that, quote, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And circumcision, or pardon me, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But circumcision, pardon me, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. So those who are merely Jews outwardly, but have uncircumcised hearts, proud and exultant, and unwilling to give the Son the kiss of deference, will be removed from Israel's midst. But those biological Gentiles who have circumcised hearts changed by the Spirit to trust in and to hope in the God of Israel who are willing to live under Israel's Messiah King, Savior King, they become, they are counted in God's eyes as Jews inwardly. And they share in the blessedness and the, of the rescue and the restoration of Israel. As Galatians 3, verse 29 puts it, and we circle back around to Christ on the cross here. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Is Jesus the king of the Jews then? Yes. He is that seed of Abraham, in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God promised to Abraham that kings would come from his loins, and Jesus is the foremost and ultimate and consummate king from Abraham's loins. Jesus is the son of David, who will sit on David's throne and rule over the Jews forever. But not all Jews, and not only Jews. Not the proud, proudly exalted Jews who will be removed from Israel's midst. And not only the humble and lowly Jews, but the humble and lowly Gentiles. Those also who are Jews inwardly, as Romans 2.29 puts it. Those who are Abraham's offspring by faith, as Galatians 3 and verse 7 puts it. Or as Galatians 3 and verse 9 puts it, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by this king from his loins, the son of David who sits on David's throne and rules in the new heavens and the new earth. To sum it all up and bring it to a close, the storyline of Scripture is God establishing this new heavens and this new earth, which will be ruled by the Son of David, a Jewish king, in which both Jews and Gentiles may live, in whose kingdom both Jews and Gentiles may live. Those Jews who are humble and lowly, 
and those Gentiles with circumcised hearts who are counted as Abraham's offspring. Yes, counted as Jews, Levites even, priests in God's eyes. That is the true Israel. That is the restored Israel. That is the ultimate Israel. That is the biblical vision of the end of all things. And the word we use for end times, the study of the end times is eschatology. That is the eschatological Israel. The true Israel. The ultimate Israel. Jews and Gentiles together, living under the son of David, that king from Abraham's loins, in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is the new Jerusalem, as Revelation 21 puts it. <laughs> so I put the obvious question to you in closing. Are you a Jew who will live forever under Jesus? the king of the Jews. No, you may not be an ethnic, biological Jew, but do you have a share in the eschatological hope of Israel? Do you have a share in the end times hope of Israel? By faith, you may be counted as a son of Abraham, numbered among the children of Israel, counted, considered in God's eyes, as a Levite even, as a priest, with full access, not being a Gentile, therefore a second-class citizen in Christ's kingdom, but given the access of Aaron and his sons into the very presence of God, no longer kept out, but welcomed in, and welcomed in fully, with the fullest access that any Jew could have under the old covenant to God. Are you hoping and longing as the disciples were after Jesus' resurrection in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? Or to state the same question a different way and to tie it in with last Sunday morning's message. Are you a dual citizen, both of whatever kingdom you now live in, whether Barbados or the U.S. or Canada or wherever else? Are you a dual citizen, both of that kingdom and Jesus' true and ultimate eschatological end times Israel? Or do you live simply in the here and now, as if this is the only kingdom. And like the chief priests in this passage say, John 19 and verse 15, do you have no king but Caesar? God forbid that you should remain in such a pitiful and hopeless state. Begin hoping in Jesus today. <clears throat> Jesus said, all who come to me, whoever comes to me, I will never cast him. God promised Abraham 
in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I can include you. If you come to take shelter under the wings of the God of Israel and of his Messiah, his Savior King, who will rescue and restore and bring to blessedness that true, ultimate, eschatological end times, Israel. We will come to Jesus' actual suffering in the near future. But it's interesting in this passage, this horrible ordeal of flogging is passed over in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And then it moves on. And then in verse 18, we simply read, there they crucified him. And it moves on. It's fascinating that in the first 22 verses of John chapter 19, the dominant theme is still the kingship of Jesus. And this debate about this title, the King of the Jews. So we'll try to pull out as we work through all the themes that are latent here in this passage. But again, because it carries over from chapter 18 into verse, or into chapter 19, I want to press on you again today the kingship of Christ Jesus. So I leave you with that meditation on this title, Jesus, the King of the Jews.